0: All right, John 21 if you have your bibles you can turn there. I didn't put these on the overhead uh this morning because there's so much in that that last chapter. It's really a kind of a an expression or what I said an epilogue of the end of John's letter. And I want to start by just maybe sharing a little little story. I've got a friend, really good friend, Dick Fellers, lives down in Scottsdale, Arizona. and We both shared a love for flying airplanes and air shows and watching people doing, doing stunts. Not that I would do the, the stunts myself. I'm with someone else. But he said, i got to show you something. i got to show you something. So he pulls out his uh, phone, and he says, watch this. And it's, uh, it's someplace in Europe. But this guy takes this stunt plane, and he's... Flying toward this bridge, and the bridge is going over this wide river. I'm not sure where in Europe it is, but this big wide river and this bridge. And he's flying down really low, and I and I said that he's going to fly under that bridge. I can't believe that. And he said, "Watch this. He comes right up to the bridge, turns over on his back, and goes under the bridge, and up and around." And I said, "Do that again." <laughs> so he he runs it again, and he. And then he looks at me and he says, we can do that. <laughs> I'm thinking, no, we can't do that. <laughs> and so we go over to his computer and he's got this computer game, you know, and you, you can take your airplane. You can, you can pick any kind of airplane you want and fly it anywhere you want. And so we, we picked the fastest little stunt plane we could and, and see if we can find that bridge over in Europe and then do it. And uh, I don't know how many times I crashed into the water, crashed into the bridge, crashed into the building. Uh, and, and I don't think I ever, I, I didn't even do it on the video game. <laughs> but the one, the one fun thing about video games, and I'm not a real gamer like that, is that you can just restart it, you know, push it again. Whereas if you're in real life, there is no button to push. And, and I have thought in, in my own life how many times I've wished for a reset. Okay, let me try that again. I've said something to someone and I think I should not have said that. Have you ever done that? And I just wished I could rewind my life about an hour and have another try. Now, the truth is I probably wouldn't do much better If I was able to do that, sometimes I've wished a whole series of things of of mistakes or things I've said or decisions I made or choices. I thought, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. And. You get discouraged with it. And sometimes you do the same thing over and over to where you don't even feel like asking God to forgive you because you feel embarrassed about it. Now, that, I've felt that so many times. Recently, i felt that. Could I rewind my life and try again and, and do better at it? And I think when we come to John 21, and as I said, it, it's like the story's been told, we've watched a movie, now we're going to see the, the credits, and then here's what happened to these people. And, and if you look at the disciples, Jesus had said... I want you to go to Galilee, and I'll meet you there. But if you could have felt the mood of, of these disciples, these were the ones who had spent three and a half years living with him. They were living with him. They pretty much heard everything he taught. They watched the perfection of his life. They saw him pray to his Father in heaven. They saw him Raise dead people and and heal the lame and cause the blind to see. Leprous people were cleansed of their leprosy. All of these miraculous things. And the events of what we have called the Passion Week shouldn't have been a surprise to them, because from the very beginning he said, I will be handed over to the Gentiles, betrayed, I will be scourged, I will be crucified. And I will rise again the third day. In fact, my, my recent going through the, the Gospels, just reading through, I, I, I was marking how many times he said that. He said that, but I don't know that they really got that because you remember that night that they left the upper room and they're going over to uh, Gethsemane and he's praying there and, and he's, he's sweating drops of blood, literally sweating drops of blood because his body's breaking down with the stress of the realization and and really coming to this point, he's not just realizing it, but he's coming to this point that he is going to bear on himself all of the sins of the world. And his father will turn away. He'll cry out, Father, why have you forsaken me? And his disciples are with him. They've seen all of this. Judas comes to the garden, and he's got all the, these, uh, the, Herodian, the sol- Herodians, the soldiers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're coming behind him. And, 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 and Judas has betrayed Jesus. One of his twelve has betrayed him with a kiss. He said, The one I kiss is the one. They take him away, and all night they beat him, they mock him, they scourge him, they falsely accuse him, and they crucify him. Where do the disciples go? And I think it's, it's easy for us to be critical, say, well, how could Peter deny the Lord? How could Thomas doubt? How could all of them scatter? Even John, it says, he fled. There is not one. There is not one who stayed there, right there with him. And now he is risen. If this uh, this event is probably, I would say, between nine, eight, or nine days, and um, maybe two weeks after the resurrection. It'll be the third time that Jesus is presenting himself to these disciples. But you can imagine they really feel like failures. So that's the mood. And we're going to see in this chapter how Jesus will reach out. And restore these disciples to usefulness. And, and I love the application because I think that Jesus does that for you and me on a regular basis. He is into restoration. And these are believers. Judas was appeared to be a believer, really wasn't. But we're talking about the most faithful people on the face of the earth at the time. They, they didn't stay faithful to love him. But this is what he does. And this, this story is really three scenes. So if you can just picture in your mind, there, there are three different scenes. There's a, the first scene is the disciples are in a boat, and they're fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus comes standing on, on the shore speaking to them. The second scene, they've come in, and they're gathered around the coals of fire, and they're eating together breakfast. And then the third scene is when they're getting up and walking away. And in each one, we're going to see how Jesus is working to help them get through their failure, get through their personal failure. And he does that in each, each setting, each one of these settings. You have three settings. There's a question he asks and then a command that he gives. So a question. And the question is usually to stir up their thinking, stir up their conscience. He's probing into their life. Jesus was a master at asking questions. And so he's wanting them to think. He asks them a question, and then he gives a command. But it's interesting that every command he gives, there are three of these commands, is a reiteration of a previous command that he had already given. So he's bringing them back to focus, asking a question, bringing them back to where they need to be. And And I find this, that God's Word... Does that for me? The when you say He restoreth my soul in Psalm twenty three, or He restores my soul, is that every day God is is asking questions? He's provoking us to think by His word, and then He is calling us back to the way that He wants us to be living. So, scene one, and we see this in in the first eight verses. Um, Disciples are discouraged, they're waiting. He said, go to Galilee, this is, this is home for them. Uh, most of these disciples are fishermen. There are actually seven of, seven of the disciples, not all of them are here, but seven of them are here. This is Galilee, this is at the, at the seashore. We, we know Peter, James, and John, um, they are together, Andrew, uh, they're fishermen, and they're, they're waiting for Jesus to come. It's going to be obvious when we read these verses, Peter's the leader. Peter's always the most outspoken guy. He kind of sticks his neck out there and does everything that, uh, that people will follow. And they go back to what they're comfortable in doing. And I think this, that just to, to, to note this, that, that when we, fa- say we're trying something, we're, we're trying this Christian life, we're trying to live differently, we're trying to follow Christ Uh, to make some changes in our lives, and we fail, and we fail, and we fail, and we fail. Not only do we get discouraged, we decide, I'm just going to go back to the way I used to live. I can do that. I'm not sure all the things that were going through their minds because I I wasn't there, but I can imagine uh, Peter would probably say, well, at least I can fish. (laughs) You know, I can't follow Christ very well, but at least I can fish. So in verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We'll go with you. So you can just tell Peter's always kind of giving the marching orders. So they went out. Got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, this is probably in the evening. They go out there. They're spending all night fishing. Catch nothing. Just as the day was breaking, sun is just ready to come up. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. I think there are a couple things on this that they didn't recognize him because they weren't expecting him, one, but also, in his, he had now had a glorified body. And I think that there was a difference maybe in the way he looked or in the, the way that they saw him. I'm not sure, but that was, that was true after the resurrection on several times when they say they didn't recognize him. But it was Jesus, and he was standing on the shore, and he asks a question. And the question, you know, you just, you got to love this if you're a fisher, fisherman but uh, do you have any fish? Or did you catch anything? Hey, guys, catch anything? <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, of, you know, if you are really confident in your ability, I know how to fish. I may not know how to walk with God, and I may not know how to be a disciple, but I know how to fish. Hey, guys, you catch anything? <laughs> they answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, the disciple whom Jesus loved was John. That's how he always defined himself. I don't know if that was uh, humility or arrogance. (laughs) I can't read into his heart. Uh, You know, it's like your kid saying, I'm the one that mom and dad love the most. Um, He didn't say most, but he's, he's always referring to himself that way. He says, it is the Lord. And I love this next section because it just describes Peter's whole personality. When Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment because they were kind of stripped down to their, just like a loincloth when they're, when they're working out there in the, in the water. And it says, he put on his outer garment and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards off. Now, you think about this, this first picture that, that here you've got seven guys in a boat. They're fishing all night. They know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. At least they think they know what they're doing. It's a very humbling thing. You go back, they're, they're really going back to what we were doing before three and a half years ago started when Jesus came by when they were kind of minding their own business fishing. <laughs> and he said to them, Follow me. I mean, their lives had radically changed three and a half years ago. So you go back into the Gospels and read that account, and you're going about your life, you're doing your thing. It's very temporal. I mean, you know, you fish, you eat the fish, you fish again, you eat the fish, you just go on, you get old, you die. I mean, so what they're doing is it's a good work, it's a good trade, there's nothing evil about it, but it's very temporal. It's not eternal And Jesus calls them to an eternal work. He says, from now on, you're going to fish for men. I want you to care about the souls of men, not just this fishing. So three and a half years ago, their lives had radically changed. And it it was like a blur being with Jesus. But they had done that and apparently feeling now that's over. And things have not turned out like we thought and we have pretty much failed at that so let's go back we can do this i can do this and uh you know i thought that in my life so many times when i whenever whenever i think i can do that the lord will quickly remind me that i can't do that in john fifteen five, there's a verse that that's uh that i've referred back to many times it says for without me you can do nothing for without me you can do nothing Oh, I can do something. Well, but what he's saying is, you cannot do anything of eternal and lasting value without me, and you can't even fish. So this first question that he asks is a very provoking question. When he asks the question, "Do you have any fish, or or do you have any food?" and Then he follows this up. I think that the question exposes the fact that they're not successful even in what they think they know they they can do well. And then the command is, cast the net on the other side. And when you think about that, here's a guy on the shore giving advice to professionals. And, like, we've been out here all night. You don't think we've—they don't don't have this, I'm sure— some of them could have been thinking this, so a lot of it. This is my speculation. Am my reading into this? But I, but I but I think here they are all night. They've been fishing, catch nothing, and someone standing. They don't recognize it as Jesus. So he says, to "You cast the net on the other side of the boat, on the right side of the boat." I'm thinking, "Hello." I mean, what difference is that going to make? Now, they didn't say that, and they're, they're probably thinking, "It won't hurt," and they they throw the net over the other side of the boat. And they, ca- and they have so many fish in the net, they can hardly haul it in. Later on in this text, it says there are 153 fish. And it says large fish. And, and the kind of fish that, that they would typically catch were between one and two pounds. So you're talking about a net that's most likely, most, most scholars that, that know the kind of fish, the kind of fish they would catch, say there's probably about 300 pounds of fish in this. And so later on you find that Peter is dragging this out of the boat all the way up the shore by himself. So not only is he a braggadocious lead the guy being in the front, he's just like this rough and tough type of type of a guy. They cast on the other side and they see something incredibly extraordinary. I mean, this is amazing. No fish all night, one cast And they have 153 fish, almost breaking their nets. And so instantly, John makes this comment, it's the Lord. He recognizes Christ because of the miracle. And it compares to John or or Luke chapter 5. Back in Luke chapter 5, Jesus was in a boat speaking to the multitudes. And they they had fished um, for some time, not catching anything. And he gave the same command, cast your net out. And they said, Lord, we've fished all night and caught nothing, but nevertheless, we'll do this. Same thing happened. And Peter said, his famous words, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. In other words, don't even be in my presence. I am so, you're God. So this miracle is a repeat of a previous miracle that helped them recognize this is Jesus. And this is their, this is now their response. They pull in the fish. Peter jumps overboard. Can you imagine this? That he grabs his coat. I'm thinking that's kind of dumb. Putting your coat on. I was thinking, why would a guy put the coat on? And jump in the water. But the Jews had, you know, a, a thing about when you're going to see someone. You don't you don't just walk around in your uh, the least amount of clothes like you're out there. And typical for us to be like a bathing suit out there. So he puts on his garment, and it's between jumping in, swimming, and running about a hundred yards in to the shore, which really lets me know. That once he recognized it was Jesus, he didn't hang his head in shame, and he didn't run the other way. He ran to him. And you ever know that? You notice that about your kids? If you've got a good relationship with your kids when they're little and they get hurt, they run to you, even when they're in trouble. And I think there is a genuine, Peter has a genuine love for Christ. Christ. It's not fake. You know, when I, when I, when I read, you read later on, Jesus is asking these other questions about, do you love me, Peter? Well, Peter does love Jesus. But it's not perfect. It's not perfect. He has faltered many times like we do along the way. And so they come to the shore, and they know it's him, but they're afraid to say anything. <laughs> so next section, next scene, we're on the shore, and there's a fire coals of fire. It says, and there are only two times in the New Testament that this this uh, terminology is used. Coals of fire. And the other time we read about coals of fire is in the courtyard of Caiaphas when they are tri- uh, Jesus is on trial the night he, night he has been betrayed. And there are coals of fire and they're warming themselves. And Peter is asked, are you one of his followers? And he denies him. So he was warming himself at the coals of fire there. This is where his his big denial comes, at the coals of fire. And so, do you think this is just coincidence? I don't think so. I think that Jesus now is bringing Peter from coals of fire of failure to the coals of fire of restoration. And same place, he's going to have this conversation with him. And he in, invites him to sit down and eat. And what you're going to find, I think, with 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 Jesus is you say they're always eating. This is where they the church even after this the churches would always meet around food. It was their fellowship. It was like it breaks down the barriers. We sit down and we like us we'd have coffee or have tea or have, have something to eat. Come down, sit down. It's this is this is what Jesus did and doesn't even get into the questions or the commands for a long time. Doesn't seem he they're gonna sit down and eat. Come down, bring your fish, sit down and eat. So that's what they do. So in verse nine I'm going to just read this little bit, uh, having given a little context. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, and fish laid out on it and bread. I'm not sure how Jesus prepared that. Of course, he could have just spoken it into existence. (laughs) Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, and he goes on to this, he has a question. Do you love me more than these? And he said to them, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, Now, it's interesting that you have the coals of fire, and he asks him three times. So, coals of fire, he denied him three times. Coals of fire, he asks him three times, do you love me? Now, there's probably no question that will go to the depths of your soul more than, do you love me? I don't know if someone has ever asked you that question. Do you love me? Sometimes it could be just wanting the assurance that you're loved. But it may be that there's some behavior or something that's been done that made you question real love. Say, if it wasn't a very loving, kind person, do you, do you really love me? But these are the questions. And I, and I think that, one, when, when Jesus asks such a question... He's really getting into the motive. And did you know this? If so you read through the New Testament, the Lord cares more about our hearts than anything. We live in a world where, you know, you don't see my heart. All you see is what in my life. You don't see my heart. But the Lord sees our hearts. He knows. There's, like, and, and Peter says, Lord, you know, you know everything. I can't hide that from you. But I believe this, that I can have a right heart attitude and a right motive and want to do right, but by the end of the day, I still fail. Don't you find that? I mean, I can start out in the morning and read my Bible and say, Lord, I'm going to do this, and I'm committed to this, and Lord, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and by the end of the day, I'm thinking, oh, man, I blew it again. (laughs) That's why when someone asks me, how how long do you need to be restored? I said, at least once a day. (laughs) I mean... We can take time throughout the day to talk to the Lord about these things, but he goes right to the the motive, and he talks about love, which if you were to say the most important command in all of the Scripture, of all of the Scripture, is to love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The second commandment is like it. And what Jesus said is that you can take all of the commands in the Bible, all of them, And boil them down to this, love the Lord and love others. So this is what he's getting at. Love is the height of maturity. Not only is it the the chief motive and sum up all of the commands, he has also said to the believers, this is how they're going to know you're my disciples. How how can you pick out a disciple in a crowd? By the love they have for one another. So it is the distinctive characteristic. He didn't, you know, I think if you were to ask me, I'd probably say, well, believe in the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, believe in the inspiration of the Bible, the virgin birth, the blood atonement. I'd give you a whole list of doctrines and say, that's what a believer is. <laughs> you know, they believe this whole creed. And I'm not saying that's not important, but it, that is not the d- distinguishing mark, the distinguishing feature of a Christian. A Christian is someone who's filled with love. The love for God, love for others. That's what, that's what it is. So this is what he chooses. And this is what, more than anything else, that Jesus demonstrated on the cross, when he died on the cross. Now, you could say he showed his justice, he showed his holiness, he showed how much he hated sin, but I think of all of those things, what Jesus showed more than anything on the cross is how much he loved us. I mean, greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And so this is what he he focuses isn't it, on Peter. Do you love me? And he qualifies it, and this is a little bit of a puzzle when you you try to figure out what does he mean by this. Um, do you love me more than these? These what? And uh, you you could argue some argue that do you love me more than these boats and fish and nets and this career? Do you love me and what I'm doing more than these? Or do you love me more than you love these other six guys? But I think that that he's referring back. I think all of this refers back in context to um, to what has happened before. Let me just read a little bit in, in Matthew. It talks about when he says, "Do you love me more than these?" I would maintain that that uh, Peter was saying, "Lord, I love you more than anybody loves you." You ever say, you ever say that to someone? "I love you more. I love you. I love you more. I love you more." No, I. Okay, this is kind of what Peter's doing. But it says in Matthew 26, verse 30, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's exactly what happened. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered, and Peter's always the guy that's going to come out and I'm say something really dramatic. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, I can hear myself, maybe not in this situation, but I mean, I, I can, when, I'm, when I'm really in the groove with I'm commitment and this is right, and I will never do that. Remember what, the presidential candidates in our recent campaign, I will never let you down. Thought, man, I'd, I'd do that to people before the day's over. Um, he said, Lord, I, I, oh, I will never, I will never do that. And then Jesus said, truly, I say to you this very night, Peter. He says, I will never do that. He said, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Oh. That just kind of knocked, here here Peter is probably the the roughest, toughest, strongest, most committed, most vocal, most, you know, and, and, and in the moment, aren't we all pretty good at making commitments in the moment? You know, having our devotions, or we just heard something inspiring or heard a song and, boy, we could just be soaring on heights. And then Peter said, Lord, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. I love that. All the disciples said the same. It's like Peter said, I'm going fishing. We're going fishing. Peter said, So we will never deny you. They all said, We will never deny you. But I think really that the Lord is saying, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these other guys love me? Do you love me supremely? He's exposing his imperfect love. And then he asks him three times. He said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he uses the word, two different Greek words, <clears throat> agapao, which is the, the agape love, the John 3.16 love, the, the Christ love, which is unconditional, and, and it is unlimited. It's a choice. And he also uses the word phileo, which is a brotherly love. And I think both of those tie into this. is important. He begins by saying, do you love me agape? Of course, no one can love like Christ has loved us. I mean, we, we will fall short every time like that, but that is the supreme love. He says again, do you love me, agape? And finally says, do you love me, phileo? And Peter is being really humbled each time because it's getting closer to the number three. Three times he denied, three times he asks him. And, and it's like is saying, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. But I think that in that... Um, it's like if someone said to me, "Do you love your wife? What do you think I would say? Well, I'm a pastor i got i mean no. well, you're just fortunate because you got a wonderful wife i do I love my wife. I love my wife, but what about what about pick any day, do I or any week do I really express? My love to my wife. I think, well, kind of fell short here, fell short here. So I, I think that if if you were to ask me, do you love your wife? Absolutely. Absolutely I love my wife. If you were to say, Does your behavior every week reflect that? Well, <laughs> put a little qualifier, but that doesn't mean I don't love my wife. It shows my my propensity to fail. To drift off, to to get off track. I'm human. I'm flesh, and so this is what I think Peter is feeling now. Is yes, I do love you, Lord, but you're exposing the imperfection of my love. So here's what I think the disciples feel: is because of our imperfection, we're of no use now. We're of no use to you. What can we do? Why try? I'm going to go back to fishing. But here are the commands that he gives. He has three, three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three commands, he says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. We talked about the Psalm 23 picture and Jesus as being the shepherd. He had given these disciples responsibility to care for people, not fish, people. We're moving from fish to people. And he is reaffirming the fact and, and in a sense, recommissioning you keep doing this. In other words, yep, you failed. You blew it. It's all right. I'm restoring you. You're restored. It's like a a reaffirmation. I want you to continue to do what you what you were doing. Reconfirming the call of these disciples, something powerful happens from this point on. And I think that it is dramatic to see in, in the history of the church that there is a boldness. There is an incredible boldness and a humility. You'll see Peter, when, when he writes two short letters later on in the New Testament, First and Second Peter, our uh, men just did a recent Bible study in this, but, but incredible, he still has his boldness, but there is an incredible humility with Peter and a recognition that he is not a perfect man. But he is willing to continue. And, and the, the, the whole church shares that boldness. And literally what happens is they turn the world upside down. And it has continued to happen for the last 2,000 years. Final final scene. And if you could picture this, everybody's kind of scooting back um, in a sense. They're not in chairs, but it's like us when we're getting ready to get up from the table to leave. And so you, you have this, this picture of their ending their meal they're getting up, and some, somewhere along the line, they're starting to walk. And Jesus uses those familiar words, and uh, the command that we're going to hear is, follow me. So he's actually moving when he does this. But in verse 18, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you that when you were young, he's speaking to Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. Doesn't that sound like us, huh? That is the, that is the American dream. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go where I'm going to do. I'm going to wear what I want to wear. And uh, Peter is, I mean, he's out there. So it says, when you're young, you should dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And you know what's nice about this verse? We don't have to interpret it because he tells us. So in case you don't, Understand this? I'm going to do some explaining. <laughs> this he said to show what, by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So what, is that, what kind of death does that sound like? That sounds like the crucifixion. And that's exactly probably the, the mid-63, 64, uh, 65, um, that year that Peter was crucified. And in fact, of these 11, of the 11, we'll count Paul into that group. All of them died as martyrs, except one, the one that Jesus loved. (laughs) We'll see this. In verse 19, it says, This he was to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? I know I've read a lot of Scripture there, but I, I want you to see it and, and get context. Okay, the question and then the command. The question is this, what is that to you? <laughs> That's what Jesus says. what is that to you? He just told Peter, okay, Peter, you're going to die by crucifixion. You used to be able to go wherever you want to do, do what dress the way you want to dress, but they're going to come and they're going to crucify you. And he's talking. He said, "Follow me." So he's up following Jesus, and he's looking over his shoulder. He's looking about John, and I, I got a lot of questions about John when I get to heaven about how he's referring to himself here. But you know, the one that Jesus loved that did this, and you know, but but he looks back at John and I think, "What about him?" And Jesus says, "What is that to you?" And the command is you, follow me. In other words, Peter, you cannot concern yourself. If you're going to be a follower of me, you cannot concern yourself with what's happening with everybody else. You know, and that's, that's like a, a two-by-four across my forehead because I, I tend to do that. I think we all tend to do that. compare myself with how everybody else is doing. I think that in, in religion, in church, in Christianity, with, with people, we, we all tend to compare. And it's not good. It's not wise. If i have always going to see what John's doing and what Thomas is doing and what they're all doing over there, I can't follow Jesus. Jesus had something unique for Peter to do, as he did for Thomas, as he did for John. And John was the one that in fact he didn't live until Jesus comes, otherwise he'd still be alive today. That'd be, he'd be really old. Um, but he did live a full life. He probably lived into his 90s, and he was still writing the book of Revelation. He wrote this uh, account, the gospel, later on in his life. And so uh, he lived a full life, but God had something for him. Unique. Thomas went to India. He was boiled in oil. There are others that were, and uh, Hebrews talks about being sawn in two. They were, they were crucified. They were stoned. Uh, all of these disciples face something, but we cannot be looking at all of that. Our attention needs to be step-by-step step following Jesus, and that's exactly what it... When he says, follow me, he wants you to come into personal relationship listen to His voice, talk to Him, and obey Him every day. I get up, I hear His voice, I speak to Him, He speaks to me, not an audible voice, but God impresses upon my heart, calls me into obedience, I follow Him every day. And when I fail, I confess I'm a failure. Lord, I, I messed up. But You don't quit. You continue on. And each of these disciples was able to do that. He had called them as he, and I think when he says, follow me, we go back to Matthew 16 where it says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That has not changed. And guys, because you blew it and 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 you you big time blew it, you don't give up. You don't go back to fishing. You don't go back to the way it was. Acknowledge it and follow me. So in conclusion, I think we say, who are you? He may ask us, "Who, who are you and what are you supposed to be doing? I think there's some of us who've gotten discouraged because we failed so many times. I mean, if you're anything like me, you've battled that. I think there's some of us who have drifted away It may not be like a wholesale desertion, like I'm turning my back on God and I'm walking the other, but you just you slowly drifted. You slowly drifted from the and the meaningful relationship with Christ. Yeah, you just gotten cold. And he wants you back intimate with him, walking with him, following him. And he will provide forgiveness and restoration that we need continually. So what I love about the beauty of this story, the epilogue, is that these guys are out there in that boat and, and Jesus sought them out. He, he loves us so much, he keeps seeking us out. And he asks us questions. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Got any fish out there? Do you love me? What is that to you? They're probing questions. And then He just brings us back. Here's who you are. Here's what I want you to do. Only Jesus did it perfectly. A lot of us are like Peter. We may deny Him. Like Thomas may doubt Him. Like John, we just ran. But you know, each day, He restores our soul. He restores our soul. And He puts us back into usefulness. And there is nothing that will ever make a difference in a better way than following Jesus. It's better than catching fish. And that's what we're called to do. Let's bow together as we pray. Father, we just are so thankful for this account in the final chapter of John that shows the beauty of your love and kindness and patience, your forgiveness, your restoration. And, Lord, how often we need our souls to be restored because we've faltered along the way. We've doubted you. We've grown cold. We've drifted off in so many ways. And, Lord, I pray that we would come back to that sweet time of sitting around a table with you, hearing your voice, speaking to you, walking with you, following you. And, Lord, I pray that we would not grow weary in it, but keep anticipating that wonderful day when you come again to bring us to be with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.